So we live in a world that is pretty fraught with problems. We could make a nice long list, but we don't have several hours to go through it, do we? One of those problems that we have in our world right now is the the idea of doubt. We doubt all sorts of things. If we were to go back and look throughout the history, let's just go back a hundred years, and you can see that a lot of the doubts that we have right now would be foreign to people just a few hundred years, just a few dozen years ago. We doubt things like we doubt our government is out to help us. We doubt that journalists can tell the truth. We doubt the justice system, that it's just. We doubt history books, that they actually tell accurate history. Now this can be healthy. Doubt is a healthy thing in some instances. In some instances it can be poisonous. But we also have another plague, don't we? We have a plague of blind allegiance with no doubting, where someone swears allegiance to a party, a politician, an idea, a way of teaching. All of these are not necessary, and they're not necessarily good. But if we're honest, this confusing world that we live in right now, it's not just outside these walls, isn't it? We have a hard time finding truth. We have a hard time knowing what is true. And unfortunately, that hard time that we have outside when we're navigating websites, when we're listening to news, when we're we're evaluating political stances, when we're looking at ideologies and theories of education, and we go, what is true? Unfortunately, that comes here right into our churches, doesn't it? And honestly, what is truth is a question as old as humans. And if we're being honest, we have questions about the Bible too, don't we? We have things in the Bible that we read and we go, I don't really know what to make of that. Sometimes we just go, well, don't know, but it's in the Bible. Other times we look at it and we go, that can't be right. And we start to doubt and we start to go, what, what do we do with this? And what's interesting is that the same world that says, don't doubt this ideology, don't doubt this party, don't doubt this politician, don't doubt this newscast will immediately say, oh, yeah, yeah, you should definitely doubt your religion. You should definitely doubt the Bible. You should definitely do that. And what do they say? They say, look inward to find your truth. Look inward to see if something is true or not, instead of digging down and finding out whether it is objectively true. And unfortunately, this inward look causes you to learn more about yourself and not about the truth. The Bible's diagnosis is way different, and we see it right here in this passage. We are to take our doubts to the source of truth, not to some internal truth which is changing based on what we ate the night before. So here's our big idea. Christians have doubts. Doubt by itself is not sinful, but what we do with our doubts can be. Doubts are what Christians have. We are going to have doubts. Hear that. Doubts happen, but it's what we do with those doubts that matters. If we take those doubts and we let them fester, they become sin. They become unbelief. If we take those doubts and we drill down to find out whether those are accurate doubts or not, we grow our faith. We come back stronger. So a basic outline of this passage, we see that John doubts, verses 2 and 3, and we see Jesus assures 
verses 4, 5, and 6. It's a simple passage. I mean, this is small. This is a small passage this week. We've been going through 16, 18 verses the last few weeks. Don't worry. You'll get your full amount of time in this passage. It's only going to be six verses, though. Verse 1, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. So this is kind of a summary phrase, probably belonged with last week's passage, but it's a good reminder of where we've been. Jesus has been teaching nonstop, nonstop from all the way back in chapter 4. He taught in the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7, and then chapters 8 through 10, he's teaching while taking them out on journeys. And we call this the Sermon on the Mount and then the Sermon on the Mission, right? And he's going out and he's taking them on mission together. Where we left off last time was we were talking about how there's going to be trials. There's going to be things that are going to be tough. We're going to be, our faith is going to be shaken. And right here, Matthew inserts into the storyline John the Baptist, which he's not part of our denomination, okay? Just let's clear that up right there. It's, he's the baptizer would be a better translation, but everybody thinks that's not a word. But we're going to use it as a word today. So John the baptizer is right in the midst of one of these trials that Jesus talked about last week. So let's refresh our, our, our memory. Who is John the Baptist, John the baptizer? Well, he's a godly man. He's a godly man and he's a prophet. He's the first prophet after centuries of time without prophets. He's the one that the Bible says was a voice crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. He is the immediate precursor to the Messiah. At one point, John says, stop following me, my disciples. Go follow Jesus. He's the real deal. I'm the pointer. I'm pointing to him. He even says that in John chapter 1, verse 20. He says, I'm not the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. Even before he was born, John the Baptist was something special. Jesus, inside of his mother's womb, walks into the presence of John and his mom, and John the Baptist jumps for joy inside of his mom. He could tell that Jesus was the Messiah. Not only that, but the moment that I'm definitely going to Google when we get to heaven... All right, the moment where Jesus is baptized and he comes up out of the water and it says the Holy Spirit descends like a dove, but there's more. The voice of the Father says, this is my beloved son. It says it thundered from heaven. I imagine James Earl Jones's voice right there, right? Or, or Morgan Freeman or some one of these guys with these great voices. John hears this, right? What a place to be. Wouldn't that have been amazing? So in light of all that we know about John the Baptist, the baptizer, this passage is kind of surprising, isn't it? He saw all of these things, but yet in this passage, it looks like he's questioning. Let's get into it. Verse 2. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word to his disciples from, by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? the works, deeds, activities. And I love that, that Matthew kind of like spoils the ending right here at the beginning. He goes, he doesn't say, John the Baptist's disciples ask Jesus if he's the Christ. He says, John the Baptist's disciples ask the Christ if he's the Christ, right? So Matthew's already got it settled. He's like, this is, this is a done deal. And John's gonna figure this out too, but he hasn't quite got there yet. So how could John doubt you know, for a lot of people, they look at this and they say, no, there's no way John the Baptist could doubt. This must be his disciples. This must be John's disciples going, 
oh, we have all these doubts. So John says, okay, I'll send you guys. And it's really for them, not for him. As a matter of fact, some big names in church history taught this, including Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon taught that this was the disciples, not John the Baptist. But guess what? I think they're wrong. Because what does Jesus do? Whenever Jesus is confronted by somebody who's asking something for somebody else or is asking a question to cover up another question, Jesus doesn't just go, well, I'll answer this question. No, he goes right to it. Remember the woman at the well? Right? She's like, well, uh, I don't want to talk about my lack of husband. What about which mountain we should be on? And Jesus goes, oh, yeah, on the mountain. But here, let me tell it. And he goes right to it. And we see that right here as well. Jesus doesn't go, Oh, you disciples, here's what John already knows. He goes, no, go and tell John this. So Jesus is definitely letting us know that this is John's doubt. And I think it fits perfectly with where we're going next week when John the Baptist is defended by Jesus. Jesus is saying, look at he's human. He's like you and I. He has doubts, but look at where he ended up when his doubts were killed, when his doubts were put away. So we must understand something very, very important. The first thing we must understand is that doubt is not the opposite of faith. Doubt is not the opposite of belief. The opposite of faith, the opposite of belief is unbelief. Doubt is right in the middle. It can go either way. But doubting is not a sin by itself. It's what you do with those doubts that makes it a sin. And Christ definitely shows us this in all that he teaches. He always distinguishes. He never one time failed to distinguish between doubt and unbelief. Doubt is, I can't believe. Unbelief is, there's no way I'm believing this. It's obstinate. Doubt is honest. Doubt is looking for life. Unbelief is content with darkness. And Jesus is not going to let them stand there. Jesus attacks those in unbelief. Jesus has compassion on those who are in doubt. Think about the doubters we know. I mean, the most famous one is Thomas, right? Doubting Thomas. Philip, John. We see many other times. And what does Jesus say? He's kind. He's patient. He's gracious. He doesn't have scathing words for them. Really? Really you don't believe? You've just seen all of this. No, he says, okay, I got this. I'll I'll, I'll show you. And the thing is, what Jesus knows, and I think what we need to get, is that the starting place for doubt is belief. We believe in God, but there's something that is not quite fitting, and so we, we have this doubt, and it's a, it's a belief-based doubt that we can drill into and get rid of by doing certain things with it, and we'll talk about that. Unbelief is just, you know, you throw something out there and hope it sticks, So let's look at John's doubt. There's an anatomy here of doubt. There's three things that have happened to John, and I want to make sure we see them because each of us are going to experience one of these three. We may experience all three like John does. The first one is John is in a difficult situation. The second thing we see is that in this difficult situation, Jesus doesn't meet his expectations. Jesus doesn't meet his expectations. And then thirdly, we see that John has a limited perspective. So the three things that John has is, one, John is in jail. And this is not the posh, you know, club med federal jail that some people go to when they steal millions of dollars. This would have been a pit in the ground, and all abuses are on the table. 
Not only that, but John had this view that Jesus was coming in judgment on the Romans. Hasn't happened yet. As a part of that judgment, it says he's going to free the prisoners. Hasn't happened. And then third, because of being confined to the jail, he can't see what actually is happening out there. So his perspective is limited. And we are in these different situations. So why is John in jail? Well, Matthew 4.12 tells us John had been arrested and he would, Jesus then withdrew to Galilee. John is in jail, short story version. Herod Antipas married his brother's wife. John the Baptist said, you're in sin. Herod arrested him. All right, there's no constitution. There's no bill of rights to protect people from getting arrested. It's just simply, you said something I don't like, you're in jail. And John will soon, his life will be taken as he's in jail as well. So John is facing tough times. He's facing death. But he has faith, right? I mean, we've seen this. We, he, he, he believes in God, so, so where did that go? You know, some of us would say, John, you lost your faith so, so quickly. Just a jail cell? Come on, right? And we kind of sit back, but honestly, I'm comforted by his doubt. I'm comforted by the fact that this man, who's a prophet of God, has doubts. Even if it's 2% compared to my 30% or whatever it might be, it's recorded there so that we can say, I need to be honest about my doubts. I need to be at liberty about my doubts and not feel shame for doubting. Now, I should feel shame for doubting if it's the same doubts I had 20 years ago and I've never pushed in on them. But if I have a doubt now, I can take it to the Lord, just like we see John the Baptist do. See, John the Baptist is doubting his doubts. John's saying, I know you're the Savior. I know you're the Messiah, but I have this shred of a doubt. I want you to destroy it, get rid of it. And it's interesting the way he words this, the one who is to come. Earlier in Matthew 3.11, he actually says, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. So John's using the same exact verbiage. He's saying, Jesus, I don't think I lied, but did I? Did I tell a falsehood? Is there someone else coming? See, just like we talked about how unbelief is not, doubt and unbelief are not the same. Faith is not, faith and doubt are not the same either. Faith means to trust. When we look at the Bible and we see that word faith in there, we like to put in some of the, the, the atheistic kind of talking points and that faith is blind and it's this blind faith and it's like, I don't know, but I'm just going to believe. That's not what the Bible says. The word faith in the Bible is the word trust. And each and every one of you did it today. You came in and you sat on a chair right here and right now. You all are putting your trust in these chairs. Luckily, they're pretty new, and I, didn't take, I took a couple out that were going to break on you. That would have been a fun kind of sermon analogy, right? <laughs> ha ha, Rusty, you just sat in a broken chair. No, but we don't have 100% proof that these chairs are going to hold us up. What do we have? We have the fact that we have seen them before. We've sat in them before. We see others sitting in them. Oh, man, I can't, you, can't, you can't understand how important it is that we meet together and we see each other honestly dealing with doubts, dealing with the things that we're dealing with so that we can encourage each other. That is faith building. That is trust building. So John had faith and trust, but he was having a moment's wavering. The second thing John had was unmet expectations. All of Israel has a view of the Messiah. They have all sorts of different flavors of Messiah. And amongst the many flavors of Messiah, there were two main ones. One was that the Messiah was going to be a general. 
He was going to come in like Spartacus, and he was going to kill the Romans and establish an Israelite kingdom via war. He was going to be a military general. There was another version, which is kind of the holy man Messiah. And this is where he walks in, and he is so incredibly holy, and God is God is back. And so it's not an army of Israelites, per se, but it's an army of angels. And this man is going to judge the wicked and do all of the things that Isaiah predicted and Jeremiah predicted. Maybe militarily, but probably not. This is where John found himself. John, remember, is saying, the judgment is coming. Repent, repent, repent. And now John's going, well, Jesus is here and there's no judgment. What's going on? I'm not 100% sure. Really? John's not 100% sure. He'd seen all of these things. He'd heard from heaven that God is saying, this is my son. So why is he doubting? Well, He's actually in a kind of a long heritage of doubting. We see this with Elijah. Remember the story of Elijah? He goes up on the mountain with the confrontation with Baal and Jezebel, and they've just, they, he just won the confrontation, and fire has come down and consumed the, the sacrifice, and all the prophets of Baal are killed. And then what does Elijah do? He does a victory lap? Yay, God. No, actually, he goes up on the mountain, and this is what he says. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. He just had this victory over the prophets of Baal. And yet he's still going, I don't think I've done enough. I doubt you. I doubt what I've done, Lord. Jeremiah the same way. Jeremiah has just offered a, a prophecy about the destruction of Israel. And Jeremiah doesn't do a victory lap. Jeremiah doesn't go around looking for high fives. Instead, he goes, ah, is this really what's going to happen? Do I, am I right, Lord? And he says, cursed be the day on which I was born, the day in which my mother bore me. Let it not be blessed. Why did I come out of the womb to see toil and sorrow, spend my days in shame? He's doubting the Lord's goodness that he's going to take care of a remnant which he's a part of. So doubts are something that prophets have. One author writes, John, the super prophet, prophet, has a kryptonite moment, a moment of misery and misunderstanding that has led to his honest misgivings. So John is going, did I miss it, Lord? Did I not get it right? See, this Jesus has come differently than all of the Messiah predictors had thought. He's not the conquering general yet. He is the holy man, but he's not judging yet. He's the suffering servant. And after his suffering, then the judgment will come. None of Jesus' followers nor John's were ready for this type of Messiah. But it's different today. Today, everybody wants to make Jesus into their own choose-your-own-adventure Jesus. And they want to make it so that Jesus fits whatever thing they have. So Jesus is all about my cause, or Jesus is a part of my religion, or Jesus is my homeboy. Whatever it may be, they want Jesus on their own terms. But the Bible says we must take Jesus on his terms. Which leads to our third thing that John saw, and that was a limited perspective. He couldn't see what was going on. He couldn't see the bigger picture. His perspective is limited. There were unmet expectations. There was suffering. And he had to decide, am I going to trust God even though I don't see where this is going? You know, a lot of times people think that doubts come from immaturity. But that's not the case. 
So if you're here and you've been a believer for many, many years, and you go, well, I don't doubt. I, I, I want to I push in on that just a little bit and say, you need, you need to be feeling doubt because you need to be pressing in on God. And the more we get in contact with God, the more we're going to go, that makes no sense, Lord. But I'm going to trust you. I'm going to grow my faith in you. And so we need to continually push into that. So this is not a maturity versus immaturity thing. This is not a, oh, you're a new Christian. Of course you have doubts. No, it's all Christians have doubts. Let me show you this. Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite guys. I love reading him. The Prince of Preachers. After 15 years of being a pastor, preaching 630 sermons, he writes this. Some of us who have preached the word for years and have been the means of working faith in others and establishing them in the knowledge of the fundamental doctrines of the Bible have nevertheless been the subjects of the most fearful and violent doubts as to the truth of the very gospel we have preached. Charles Spurgeon, 600 sermons. The guy is varsity level. I mean, he is up there. And he goes, I have doubts. As a matter of fact, Spurgeon not only dealt with doubts, but he dealt with depression. If you want to go to a great place to see how a godly believer pushes in on the Lord and really grabs a hold of that, of grabbing a hold of him during depression and doubt, read Spurgeon. There's many books on it. But see, Charles and John both know they don't know where this doubt is going. They don't know where it's going to end, but they trust the one who is taking them through it. And the more doubts they have, the more they grab hold of the Lord. And that's the solution to doubts, is to grab on to our God. So let's dig into this word doubt for a little bit. Is doubt a bad thing? Is it a sin? I know that, that just in a room this size, there have been people that have heard doubting is not okay. Doubting is not okay. If you're doubting, you're questioning God, and that's not belief. Well, that's not what we're talking about here. Our world says doubts are bad. I mean, just try to admit that you think a politician from your party was wrong. Try to admit that the ideological group that you have might get something wrong. Try to admit that you have doubts about something that you've proclaimed on your Twitter or your Facebook. Try to be nuanced in a discussion about things that people take black and white. What's your response going to be? You're going to be canceled. I can think of, I, I, there's several ladies that I can think of who have expressed concern about men playing in women's sports. And these, these incredibly ardent feminists are getting canceled for that. Why? Because they ask the question of nuance. Is this, is this right? There's a little doubt there. And again, what's ironic, and I talked about it earlier, is that our world is all about don't doubt your tribe, don't doubt your group. Oh, but if you're a Christian, if you have any religious faith, doubt that. Yeah, yeah, totally doubt that. We're all for that. Doubt, doubt, doubt. And unfortunately, we do this. We take the fact that doubt is bad, and instead of doubting things rightly and taking them to the Lord, we begin saying, no, no, doubt is bad, and we push it out, and our faith doesn't grow. Or we take doubt in, and our world says, oh, yeah, yeah, doubt your religion, doubt your Christianity. And so we feed the little doubt, and before you know it, it grows and grows, and it devours us. So we need to understand what doubt is, and what is good doubt, and what is bad doubt. So there's two kinds of doubt. The first one is called believing doubt. The second one's called, sorry, the first one's called unbelieving doubt. The second one's called believing doubt. So unbelieving doubt is not actually looking for answers. 
It's just reveling in the questions. It's rolling around in the mud of the questions and enjoying being in the questions and in the mud. It's never there to build up. It's simply to tear down. A person that follows this is wanting just to ask questions and ask questions and just enjoy the question asking without actually coming to any sort of conclusion. Remember, doubt is not unbelief, but it becomes unbelief when we let the doubts stay, when we let the doubts fester. We are, not, we are, we are weak and we are frail and we can't see things clearly, and so therefore doubts happen. And when they do, we need to take them to the right place. And if we're honest with ourselves, the people out there that are doubting the most, the people that are atheists, they have just as much belief as the Christian. They have to believe things they can't see. They have to believe things that aren't there. They have to have belief. So doubt is not unbelief, but it can become unbelief. Unbelief is a decision. Unbelief is a decision to go, I'm going to live as if there is no God. It's a choice to reject. It's saying, I don't care about the facts. This is what I believe. This is what I'm going to do. Now, doubt is different than that. It can start with faith. It should start with faith. It can be a longing for 100% certainty. It's not bad to go, I wish I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt. 100% that this is true. That this makes sense. That this is where I'm supposed to be at. But again, remember, even those who saw all the things, like how many of you have ever said, man, if only I could, and then you fill in a Bible story, and then you say right now. If only I saw a burning bush right now, I'd be a much better Christian. If only Jesus appeared to me right now, I could, I could totally believe. If only I heard God's voice from heaven and saw the Holy Spirit descend, I could believe. Look what John's telling us here. John's saying, even with all of that, there's still going to be ways that we're going to doubt. The thing about it is, just because I can't prove my faith in God 100% doesn't mean it's wrong. So let's get into believing doubt. Believing doubt, it's all about what we do with our doubts. What do we do with our doubts? Do we just let them sit or do we go after the root? Do we try to get into it? Believing doubt is what strengthens beliefs. When you go after your doubt, when you dig into it, it makes what you believe stronger. It starts with a place of simple belief and it gets stronger as it engages and overcomes unbelief. It's like a muscle. In order to grow a muscle, you first must tear it. That's why you're sore after you work out, after you run, after you lift weights. You tear the muscle, it causes trauma in the muscle, but yet you care for yourself and it grows back stronger. It's the same thing with doubt. Doubt is a means by which we can grow our faith and grow it that much stronger. One of the ploys that Satan loves to do, C.S. Lewis brought this out in his book, The Screwtape Letters, but what he loves to do is he loves to break our links with God. He likes to take all of our connections we have with God and try to sever them. And doubt is one of these. When we take and he severs the link that we have with God and he says, oh, do you doubt God's goodness? Oh, yeah, you need to find the answer to that. He doesn't say, go read your Bible. He says, look within. And all of a sudden, you begin turning inward for your answers. You begin looking for people who will tickle your ears. And before you know it, you are so disconnected from God. Doubt will become unbelief if we feed the doubt. 
if we feed the doubt. It goes from being the little cute alligator that you have in your glass thing at home to the one you threw into the, into the, um, into the, into the whatever that place is, the gutter, and it comes out and it's ginormous and it's eating people, right? Because it gets fed and you feed it and it gets bigger and bigger. Same thing goes for our doubts. If you feed your doubts, your faith starves. If you feed your faith, your doubt and your unbelief will starve and go away. Helen Keller has a great quote that I want to read to you. It says, it need not discourage us if we are full of doubts. Healthy questions keep our faith dynamic. Unless we start with doubts, we cannot have a deep-rooted faith. One who believes lightly and unthinkingly has not much of a belief. But he who has faith, which is not shaken, has won it through blood and tears. It's as if he has worked his way from doubt to truth as one clearly crawls through a thicket of brambles and thorns into an open field. I love that picture. I love that idea of a hedgerow of thorns. And when we are, oh, it it hurts, but I'm going to pull through it. I'm going to dig through it. That's what we're to do with our doubts. Because doubts will attack us, but they don't have to master us. We must be careful, though, as we see those around us doubting to not condemn. We must respond with tenderness. John's doubt means I'm free to admit that I'm doubting. We need to be a place where we can admit that we're doubting. And John the Baptist illustrates it for us, and Spurgeon actually clarifies it. He says, the best way to get our faith strengthened is to have communion with Jesus. So let's look at the antidote to doubt. Verse 4, Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and what you see. Look at the patience here, right? Look at the patience. Not, what's wrong with you? You're an idiot. Are you serious? You've seen all of this. What's your problem? No, he goes, okay, let me show you. Let me tell you. There's a gracious response. And now Jesus is going to summarize. And, and of course, Jesus works on so many levels that we can't even grasp all the levels. But in this, Jesus goes, here are the things that I did. And he's actually quoting Old Testament verses to John because John has a question behind the question. The question is, why are you waiting, Lord? And so John is asking that question by asking, are you the one? And Jesus cuts right through it by quoting specific verses to him. Look at verse 5. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and deaf hear. The dead are raised and the poor have had good news preached to them. Jesus says, look at your Bible. Look at Revelation. I have revealed this in my word. Here it is in front of you. See, God's word is a rock. Doesn't mean it makes everything easier. It means that when we are standing on the rock, we will not sink. That's where he's at. So he lists six things that he does. He says, the blind will receive sight. We saw this back in Matthew 9. This is a reference to Isaiah 35.3. The lame will walk. We'll see this in a few weeks in Matthew 15, also a reference to Isaiah 35. The lepers have been cured. We saw Jesus do this chapter 8, verse 1 through 4, reference to Isaiah 53. The deaf will hear. We don't see it here in Matthew, but we do see it in Mark at the same time, Mark 7, also a reference to Isaiah 35. The dead will be raised. Jesus did this back in Matthew 10. That's from Isaiah 16. And then the final one, and Jesus leaves this one last on purpose. He says, the good news is preached to the poor. We saw this in Matthew chapter 5. And then we see it in Isaiah 61, 1. 
So Jesus says, look to Scripture. Scripture has the answer. You can see, I am doing the things that are listed as the Messiah's job. He answers John's question, though, behind the question. See, John wants to know, where's the judgment on the unjust and evil people? I don't know, like, say, Herod, who threw me in jail? Where is his judgment? I proclaim judgment. It's not happening. See, John knew the prophecy in Isaiah 61. That says the Messiah would come to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of prison to those who are bound. He's going, hey, uh, still in prison. What's going on here, Jesus? And see, what Jesus has done here is he's chosen these prophecies. There's hundreds of prophecies for the Messiah. He's chosen these, and he leaves this one to last because what he's telling John is, John, I know you know the prophecy. And the prophecy says, there are all these things that must happen and judgment. He says, these things are happening and the judgment is coming. He leaves them off on purpose so that John knows, okay, it's an already not yet thing. It's a, this is happening, this is just coming. It's postponed. It's not not happening. It's postponed. It'll happen after Jesus' death. It'll happen when they stand before the Lord. And so he's encouraging John saying, the day of judgment is coming. So we've seen that John has doubts. John went right to the Lord with his doubts. So what does this say to us today? Well, I want to put us into two groups. One group right now is those who are in the midst of doubts. Okay, You've got something that's just lodged there, and you're like, ah, this is a doubt. And maybe even just came up from this sermon. Okay, The other group is, I don't have any doubts right now. But the good news is, is that you have people around you that do have doubts. So both groups are going to be addressed now. So let's talk about the people who have doubts. And I'm borrowing a lot of this from a guy named Jared Wilson, a phenomenal pastor. So what do we do to battle our doubts? The first one is we concentrate on the cross. So we concentrate on the cross. And so I would would think about it like this. If you're not currently doubting, these are a good set of tools to have going forward. So the first one is concentrate on the cross. When Jesus was confronted by Thomas, he goes to Thomas and he says, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand, put your hand into my side, stop doubting and believe. He doesn't go to, he doesn't go to Thomas and go, see I'm here, come touch me. He goes, no, look at, look, at, look at the cross did to me. Look what the cross did to me. And this is the same for us. We need to push in on the cross. If we lose the cross, We lose all focus of what actually matters. The cross is the hinge point of all of history. It's the hinge point of our history with God. So read the Gospels. Read what Jesus did on the cross for you. Reflect on that. Read books about the cross. Read the Gospels over and over again. Revel in what he did there for us. Second thing to do is do not seek advice from those who would shame you for doubting as if they never did. Do not seek advice or counsel or refuge with those who shame you for your doubt, as if they never had a doubt. Jude 22 says, be merciful to those who doubt. Do not worry about whether your doubt is a sin. Instead, view it as a wavering, okay? View it as a wavering. Recognize it that it's a feeling you don't want to have and refuse to be victimized by it and humble yourself and go to the Lord. That's the position we must be in. We must humble ourselves and go, I don't know. I I need help on this. 
The third thing we are to do is we are to pray. We are to pray. Even better, hurl yourself at God. Don't let him get away. Just throw yourself at him. Lord, help me. Look at these examples. Mark chapter 9, verse 24. The father says, I believe, help my unbelief. This was the, 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 the man who Jesus asked, do you believe I can heal your son? And he goes, I believe, help my unbelief, Lord. Two miracles. The son is healed. The man has his unbelief taken away. The apostles, in Luke 17, 5, the apostles say to Jesus, Lord, increase our faith. Now those are verbal right to Jesus right in front of them. We don't get the privilege of that. But we can pray to God wherever we are and say, Lord, I don't understand. Help. Help. This is a combative measure to get through doubt. We take it to the one who we know that the Bible says, if we cry out to him, if we approach his throne boldly, he hears us. We pray and we ask him. Fourth thing we do, we refocus our doubts on our failings and inabilities. We refocus your doubts on your own failings and inabilities. What does that mean? It means doubt your own doubts. In fact, doubt yourself. Doubt the fact that you can see anything clearly. Remember, John the Baptist couldn't see what was actually going on. He had to send people out. We need to have that same posture for ourselves and go, I can't see it all clearly. I need to start doubting myself. 1 Corinthians 1.25 says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. This is very counterintuitive. This is counterculture. Our culture says, believe in yourself. Look inside. You need the therapeutic gospel to treat your needs. But we don't need more of ourselves. We need more of the Lord. An example of this is someone who's drowning. The correct response to one who is doubting is not stop doubting God. Telling someone awash in doubt to simply stop doubting is like telling a man in the water who's drowning, try harder, thrash more. Telling a drowning man to stop thrashing or to thrash more is to thrash away his safety. What has to happen if you've ever seen or ever been around a lifeguard? A lifeguard can't save a life until the person gives up and allows the lifeguard to save a life. If the person's thrashing, they're going to kill themselves and the lifeguard. We are the same way. Our doubts become our focus, and it becomes this thing, and we're thrashing about, and the Lord's like, as soon as you stop thrashing, I'm good, I got you. But we so think we can do it. If you think God can't be trusted, think about yourself. How together are you? How well do we have it all figured out? How much control do we actually have? Let's be honest. How are our plans coming together? How is following your heart working out for the people around us? If we're honest with ourselves, we realize that we are utterly dependent and feeble. When we doubt ourselves, we're in a perfect spot to begin trusting God. And that trusting is faith. Finally, read your Bible. Meditate on Scripture's promises in any area, but especially on the area of your doubt. If you doubt God's love, find promises about his love. If you doubt God's justice, find promises about his justice. If you doubt any of his promises, read and reread those promises. There's all sorts of collections of these. You can find them at places, even Walmart has Bible promises. Our book table today has a whole bunch of them as well. 
But read the Bible. Do a, a word search on an online concurrence. Just type in God's promises and read them. Savor them. Chew on them. His word does not return void. If we do this, if we meditate on God's word, our doubt begins to wither and fade and our faith and trust in him grows because what you feed, it grows. See, God is bigger than our doubt. Remember, we can trust him. We can have faith in him and that many times starts in the midst of our doubt. We only need a mustard seed, a mustard seed of faith, a mustard seed of trust in order to grow. So let me give you an example of this, an illustration. So doubt is a normal part of the Christian life. Normal in the sense, it's like when we have visitors come visit our house, right? Someone comes and visits, they stay in your house, they sleep on your couch, they use your bathroom, they leave dishes in the sink, they maybe put the seat up, maybe don't, right? Whatever the thing is, right, they, they've invaded your space. But you can put up with it because why? Because they're going to leave, right? It should be the same thing with doubt, we don't let doubt take up permanent residence in our hearts. If we had a house guest come and they're like, what do you got in the bag there, bud? You go, hey, I got a tent. I'm going to put it right here and I'm just going to live. I got my own little you know, grill and I'm just going to live right in your living room. We would go, nah, that's not going to work for me. I think you need to go ahead and leave. But yet that's what happens with doubt is we entertain it and we keep it there and we don't, we don't pursue it. We don't chase it down. We've let it into our most intimate place, our heart, and we've allowed it to stay. And when we do that, it continues to grow. So let's not celebrate doubt. Let's not let it loiter in our hearts. Instead, let's chase it down and put it to death. John sent his disciples to get to the bottom of his doubts. This is a great example of what we are to do. So now, how about us who are not currently feeling doubts? We're feeling pretty good, all right? I don't have a doubt ready to go. First thing we need to do is you need to thank the Lord because it's a season, and we know this. If you've been a believer for any amount of time, you're going to go through strong periods of faith and weak periods of faith. And a lot of times those weak periods of faith are something has happened. It could be a believer has let you down. There's some suffering. You got a diagnosis you didn't want. Something bad has happened. Or it could be you're reading the Bible and you're reading and you're going, how is that okay? God, I don't understand. So thank the Lord that you're in this season right now. And then don't keep it to yourself. We need each other. This is a body. This is Christ's body here and now. We need to help each other out. We are in life groups. We're in Bible studies so that we're constantly bumping up against each other. When someone stops showing up or when someone shows up and they have doubts, it's not the time to say, well, it's in the Bible. It's okay. It's the time to say, let's walk through this together. Let's work with each other. I've been there. Maybe not the same doubt, but I've had doubts before. So when someone comes who's doubting, what do we do? First thing, we pray. We ask the Lord for help. Because we need to be like Jesus, and gosh, we are not like Jesus. We are the farthest thing from it, so we need Jesus' help. We need the Holy Spirit to work on us. We need to be patient. We need to listen. We don't need to correct. We don't need to tell them what to do. We need to just let them speak, and then we counsel and help them. We don't want to be like Job's friends and just keep talking and keep talking and say the wrong things. Instead, we need to be there with them in their doubts and help them walk through it, point them to Christ over and over again. See, we're all on different places of our journey. I'm reminded of Pilgrim's Progress, where Christian is going. And Christian doesn't just get one friend the whole time through the Pilgrim's Progress. 
Instead, he gets different people at different times. And that's the joy, that's the beauty of having a church body that we're a part of is each of us is at different places. Some of you dealt with doubts 20 years ago that I haven't dealt with yet. Or there's doubts that I'm dealing with now that you are just getting to. Let's work together on this. Let's point each other to the Lord. We need each other. And finally, we see a blessing here. Jesus says a beatitude for us. He says, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That word blessed means happy. It means joyful. So what does this mean? Well, it means joyful submission. We are to trust Jesus. Even when it's not easy, even when it's not sensible, even when it goes against reason, we are to submit and trust to him. And praise the Lord, we don't do it on our own. Not only do we have the spirit, but we have each other to help us in our weakness. There's a challenge here to constantly re-examine, make sure that we aren't putting unmet expectations on Jesus. We are to look and make sure that we have Christ in front of us. But here's the most amazing thing, right? So we've got John the Baptist. He's this rock star prophet. He's, you know, he's preparing the way. And then he comes to Jesus with these doubts, which could have been embarrassing. It could have been something that Jesus would be like, put it aside. But no, Jesus embraces it and points him to himself. And then look at these words just a few verses later. Matthew eleven eleven. Truly I say to you, among those born of a woman, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. You mean John the Baptist who was just doubting you? He's the greatest? Yes, he is. What an amazing picture. Os Guinness writes, too often we forget the great men and women of faith reached the heights by going through the depths. The strongest form of faith is the one that has wrestled with doubt. John was not strong because he was John. He was strong because he took his doubts to the Lord, and the Lord helped him push through. Just like that that picture of pushing through the row of, of briars and thorns to get at the nice green area. That's what we need to do. If you're here and you are not a believer, and you're going, this Christianity thing, I don't know, just know that there are answers to your doubts. There are answers to your doubts. Take your doubts to the word. Take them in prayer. Pursue them. Don't just let them fester. So here's our final thought. As long as we live in this world, we as sinners will doubt in both good and bad ways. We will question and we will wonder. If we sit back and let the doubts stay, they will demolish our faith. If, on the other hand, we can doubt anchored in our relationship with God and the teachings of his word... It will strengthen our belief. It will help us venture into the foggy places and fight the wild things of unbelief and come out stronger as one who has built his life on the foundation that is Christ. Let's pray that that is where we find ourselves. Heavenly Father, thank you that we have this word today, Lord. Thank you for John and his testimony of, of, un, of, of doubt, Lord. Believing doubt, but doubt nonetheless. Lord, thank you that his, his doubt did not become unbelief, but that he took it to the one source, to the true source that is you. I pray, Lord, that for all of us, if we are doubting, if we have questions, if we have things that do not allow us to relax in your arms, that we would take them to you. But Lord, we would stop thrashing about and trust our Savior. Help us to do that today, Lord. In your name, amen.